Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all the horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. Before we begin this week's episode, uh, we wanted to wish our condolences to the family and friends of film and genre historian David J. Scal, whose passing away this week was whose passing away was announced prior to us recording the show. Uh, his work, uh, both in print and uh, in the many documentaries he's appeared in, it's been invaluable in preparing these episodes. So we just wanted to offer our condolences. But this week we are back with Boris Karloff's final canon appearance as the monster in a Frankenstein movie. Though it's, you know, not his last time appearing in the series or in the makeup. Uh, And we are going to be talking about whether or not Karloff goes out in a blaze of glory with 1939's Son of Frankenstein. Sitting in the co-host chair again today is the co-host of the Movies for Life podcast. His writing appears over at Bloody Disgusting, Manor Vallum, among other outlets. He has a series of wonderful uh, Frankenstein articles up in Manor Vallum right now, which we've linked to in our first few episodes. Mr. Brian Kuiper. Brian, how are we? Doing good. Ready to don a big hairy shirt and lumber on into this episode excellent excellent and joining us again back co-hosting for the first time in quite a stretch she runs the film criticism site we who walk here it's jessica scott jessica how are we this afternoon i'm good i am so excited to be back i've missed y'all and missed talking about movies so i'm and we very have missed happy. you a ton yeah. we have missed you a ton but as we've said your spot's always open. So we are so glad to have you back. We Thank kept you. the light on for you. <laughs> you know, all you had to do was like slam on that giant knocker door a few times and we would open that up. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and joining us again, a special returning guest. And honestly, if I remember correctly, I think the last time you've been on this our show was election night 2020. When to distract ourselves, we recorded a commentary for like Halloween four to take our minds off of like the hellscape of the news that night. So it has been like three and a half years. Uh, so and you were one of our more frequent guests in the first couple years of the show. Uh, it is the author of Puppet Master Complete, a franchise history. His writings have appeared on Bloody Disgusting, Wicked Horror like dozens of other outlets, like too many to name right here. Like it would be a three hour show, just naming all the outlets. Uh, welcome back, Nat Bremer. How are we today? I am doing great. It's a joy to be back. It it has been that long. It was the Halloween four commentary. It was the last time I was on and uh, it's uh, great to do it again. Thanks for having me. Way too long. And that falls on me. I should have reached out way sooner, like way, way sooner to have you back on. So thrilled to have you back on especially to talk universal monsters i feel like this is right in your wheelhouse so Mm. i'm excited to go back to school with both you and brian right now so all right brian and i have shared our personal history with frankenstein and you can hear that on our first episode where we talk frankenstein so i'm really looking forward to hear from both jess and nat about their early experiences with Universal Monsters and Frankenstein in general. So, Nat, as our special guest, do you mind kicking things off? Like, where 
were you like when did you first start like watching universal monster movies and when were you first like when did you first fall in love with uh frankenstein in particular so the universal monster movies were um my first like adult horror movies um my dad got me um all of the the 90s universal vhs re-releases he got me all of the the main monsters so i consumed uh browning's dracula Wales, frankenstein and bride of frankenstein creature from the black lagoon wolfman and the mummy uh at a very very uh early age and also just there was a lot of universal monsters content in the early 90s so probably like well before i watched the movie when i was probably like three i had big frank which was a play school doll that was like a big doll that was also like the game operation where you open him up and like you get the gears turning and you see what's working and he'll be like i'm alive and it was um a bizarrely popular toy for little kids in the early 90s and that had to be never heard of this i heard him yelling in the castle fix me his name's me frank fix me i said i'm going to fix you (laughs) my talking monster big frank i'll fix you big frank monster boy is fixed (laughs) how do you feel now frank it's always fun to fix him Big Frank talks and his eyes light up. Batteries not included. Had to be my earliest brush with Frankenstein. That is amazing. I have never heard of the Big Frank toy before. Oh, it's... So you would literally take it apart, like take pieces of it out? Well, his chest opened up. And there were gears that would like turn on its own and like his heart would, you would press it and it would sound like a heartbeat and all the tools to uh, tinker uh, with him were kept in his head. I remember that you open up the flat top and in lieu of a brain, there's all these tools to like fix his gears and everything. So there was nothing that said like Abby normal brain inside of it like that at all. The 90s were both like amazing and horrifying. The early Mm -hmm. 90s in particular, in terms of like what as children we were getting to get exposed to. Like we got some really cool stuff that when you look back on it, you're like, oh, this is why we're so messed up in some ways. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like like the that was maybe the last gasp of maybe Universal Monsters being like so ubiquitous in the culture. Like you would see them on uh, you would see them on like cable TV all the time or like your local TV stations all the time uh, on cartoons all the time before they kind of maybe disappeared a little bit. Yeah. I, in, um, I mean, in the nineties, it was not like I had a universal monsters coloring book, mm-hmm. universal monsters paint by numbers. And then I had the entire set of, they did Burger King, happy meal toys. <laughs> For these like 50, 60 year old movies. Mm -hmm. It's excellent. And now, uh, God, what was it? Someone had posted like 
oh, RoboCop. Like, I like watching old movies. And that movie's <laughs> like 30 years old. Like, that's considered old. Imagine doing a Happy Meal toy for that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about now? Like, do you still find yourself, like, returning to these movies repeatedly? Like, what do you get from them as an adult? Yeah, I, I have the whole, like, Blu-ray set that was actually... Uh, one of the best things I've ever like been given. I reviewed that uh, complete set for for Wicked Horror, and I revisit the films on Blu-ray all the time. Particularly mm-hmm. the first two Frankenstein's, yeah. which I think are probably the best, uh, yeah. alongside maybe the Wolfman for me. Probably the best Universal monster films in general. Yeah. And so Wales, Frankenstein, and particular Bride of Frankenstein, which I think is one of the best movies ever made in any genre. Um, I revisit those all the time. Excellent. Excellent. Jess, how about yourself? Uh, my first Frankenstein movie was actually Young Frankenstein. Um, oh. And that, that was my only Frankenstein movie for a really long time. I, uh, most of my experience with Universal Monsters growing up was just via cultural osmosis. I didn't watch, grow up watching the movies themselves. I just kind of absorbed, you know, it's alive and the the kind of the visual iconography of the films. Um, I my first Universal Monsters movie was probably Dracula in my teens, and most of them I didn't watch until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I vividly remember the first time I watched Bride finally. Um, I had assumed that Elsa Lanchester had the majority of the screen time in the film because it's called Bride of Frankenstein. She's such Mm -hmm. an iconic figure in pop culture. And then when she's just a blip in the movie in terms of screen time, I was really shocked. But I was more shocked by how incredible her performance was. And I understood immediately why this was such a shock to the system, like such a, an iconic moment, like a watershed moment in pop culture, just her performance and how beautiful the film is. And it was just, it's one of my favorite film memories and one of my favorite film performances, uh, just because she's so fantastic. And I understood why she's endured as this, you know, iconic image in culture for so long. Um, and last night was actually my first watch of Son of Frankenstein. Oh, excellent. Um, okay. I, I was really excited for this one because as you know, I grew up on Young Frankenstein and I knew that it was based mostly on Son of Frankenstein. So I was really eager to kind of connect the dots and see what had influenced Mel Brooks and kind of fill in uh, the my pop culture blind spots to see, you know, where we're drawing from. Um, and I was uh, really pleasantly surprised by how much I loved this one. I think this yeah. has my favorite production design of the three f- first three films. Interesting, okay. which I'm sure we will get into later on in the episode. Um, but I was really thrilled to watch this one. But yeah, I've had kind of a backwards relationship with the Universal Monsters because you know, like Nat was talking about, y- you grow up, especially in the 80s and 90s, they're everywhere. But I didn't actually experience them on their own merits yeah. until much later. Yeah, because I know for me, like my love for these movies was passed on to me by my dad. Like he, Mm -hmm. you know, if I got two things from my dad, it's like a love of the three stooges and a love of like universal monsters. Like Mm -hmm. those are the two things I definitely got. 
So it's always fascinating when persons like experience these movies like secondhand and then come to them. And I'm wondering, like, by the time you saw them as adults, like, did it feel like you had already like as you're watching the movies for the first time, did it feel like you were already familiar with them or had already seen them? Uh, or was there anything uh, you mentioned with Bride being surprised by how little she was on screen? Was there anything else that was surprising or did it feel like, nope, like these already uh, already have a sense of real familiarity because you had picked up so much through the culture? No, for the most part, they feel like it's a revelation every time I see a Universal Monsters movie and actually sit and watch the film instead of just, you know, a still from creature from the black lagoon that I've seen a million times or parodies that I've seen in pop culture. It's, it's very much a fresh experience where I understand how good these films are and how, why they had the impact they did. Like I, I just, it's, it's a, it's really cool to me to kind of feel the weight of it. Like, ah, okay. I understand why this became so iconic and why this burrowed its way into people's like our collective imaginations. Um, but no, it's, it's always a weird sensation going back and watching movies, like yeah. um, seeing imitators and then going back and watching the original, but it's, I've never uh, watched a universal monsters movie and been like, ah, I've seen this. It's always a okay. revelation for me. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit about how this one got made, because I think this might be like the last one until we get to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, that like there's like a real rich production history behind it. I think what we're going to find is by the time we get to like Ghost of Frankenstein, like Universal just starts churning these things out a little bit. I mean, I'm hoping to be pleasantly surprised, but like that seems to be my impression right now. But Brian, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit and maybe like all we could all speak a little bit about what happens to horror movies after Bride of Frankenstein. We kind of hinted yeah. at it last week, but they disappear for a few years. Yeah, well, the couple of things happened. Um, so the, the Hays Code is becoming stronger during this period. It's actually being enforced starting in 1934. Uh, we talked about that with Bride and how they had to work around uh, you know, sort of slide things past the censors a lot with that movie. And apparently James Whale was going to make um, Dracula's daughter after that. And it was going to be even crazier than the bride. Um, so that obviously didn't happen. The Dracula's daughter that we have is a fascinating film, but it, it's not a James Whale movie. Um, it's, it's something quite different, much more subdued film. Um, but in 1936, uh, Dracula's Daughter essentially became the last Universal Frankenstein or Universal horror film for a while, because two things happened. Uh, the first one um, was the Lemleys lost the studio. The money issues just got away from them, and they had to sell. Um, so, was there any particular production? that did them in like was there any particular movie that you know of that was or was it just every movie carl lemley jr if it wasn't a horror movie yeah. like they were losing money on it. i i don't know if there's a specific one you can pinpoint okay. because um lemley jr was just bad with money um and we talked about that in our first episode uh, a fair amount 
And I think it was just, it just all caught up with them. Um, so exactly how it all happened, you know, what the dominoes were. I think it's a long history going all the way back to the moment that Lemley Sr. gave the studio over to Lemley Jr. Um, with the exception of All Quiet on the Western Front and the horror films, they were just not having successes. Uh, so they were losing much more money than they were bringing in. Um, the other big thing was actually probably a bigger blow was uh, the British Board of Censors banned any movie with an H certificate. So essentially horror movies were banned uh, by Britain. And so because of that, American studios said, well, without that market, what's the point? And they stopped making horror movies. And if you look, I, I checked this. If you look 1937 and 1938 for uh, horror movies in Letterboxd, there's nothing from the United States. Literally, there are two Disney shorts by Ub Iwerks that are horror themed. And then mostly um, foreign films. And it's only a handful. Uh, so uh, Japan seemed to be the place to be during this period if you want if you were a horror fan um but that was about it i mean there just wasn't it's just kind of a nothing there um so it's just kind of fascinating that it literally brought the crew i mean people say now oh it's horror back or horror's dead or whatever all the time and it's never true in 1937 and 38 it was true <laughs> so and yeah. in- Nat, Jess, maybe you could speak to it. Maybe not. I don't know. I know what the Hayes Code is, but I'm not quite sure what they could actually do, like what they could actually enforce, like what power they had in the third. I know it was very stringently enforced in, from the 30s through the 60s when like New Hollywood basically said, screw it, we're going to make the movies that we want. And you start seeing films like Easy Rider and Mrs. Robinson that just say, eschew the Hayes Code, uh, Hayes Code completely. But what real power did the Hayes Code actually have during this time where studios are going to say, we're just not going to release anything that could be seemed, that could seem objectionable? I withdraw my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the Hayes Code was, I mean, you can't show violence. You can't show sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, this is the era of uh, husband and wife have to sleep in separate beds. Sleep in separate you know, beds. I, you can't flush a toilet. You can't flush a toilet. All the, I mean, it's like it was their definition of obscenity. Whatever their definition of obscenity was, it got pulled out of your script or you couldn't make your movie. Right. But what what power did they have? Like, what is the enforcing body here? I guess like even with the MPAA, Mm -hmm. like if they theaters Mm -hmm. choose to like, there's nothing stopping a theater from releasing a movie with an NC 17 rating. Mm -hmm. They just mostly choose not to for fear of repercussions. It's my understanding of it. So I guess like, what is the enforcing what level of enforcement do they have? I guess. Well, that's what I don't understand. The studios bought into it is essentially what it comes down to because the studios, so they decided to collaborate. Yeah. Because it was a self-censoring situation where Mm -hmm. it's like, we're going to take care of this ourselves or the government's going to come in and do it for us. This is essentially what it came down to. Um, And they didn't want that. And so that's, that's how things kind of went down as far as the Hayes code goes. 
okay. in that era. Got it. Okay. So what ends up putting horror back on the map? Like why do, after a couple years, why do Universal, Warner Brothers, MGM, why is there a resurgence in horror? Because the Hays Code doesn't go away. What makes them finally say, eh, there's money to shake out of this tree? Um, the big thing is there was a legendary triple feature uh, in 1938, um, you see, at the Regina Theater in Los Angeles. Um, so they did a triple of Dracula, Frankenstein, and King Kong, and it did gangbuster business. Um, and so Universal saw that and said, hey, um, our movies that we released, you know, 10 years ago almost, are making a ton of money. Um, let's get on that gravy train while we can. Yeah. yeah. And just sort of to damn the torpedoes sort of, sort of, uh, of mentality, I think. And, you know, if Britain won't take them, then, oh, well, we will, um, sell right at home and, it, and we'll do okay. From what I read, this engagement was so successful that for nearly five weeks at this single theater every showing was sold out and there would be lines around the block like it was like jaws in 1975 or star wars in 1977 that people would wait to get in uh, and lugosi went so far to say that like screening dracula in 1938 is what resurrected his career because he essentially didn't work for two years and by 1938 like he is relying on a charity fund that's put together by the motion picture association for like whatever meager sustenance he has, like he loses his home. And he would say that I owe it all to that little man at the Regina theater. I was dead and he brought me back to life. And the theater owner is uh, Emil Ullman. But like after this triple bill, uh, it was then toured around the country at other theaters and had similar success to the degree that Universal's like, let's press forward. Although with the new owners, like they're not going to get that same lavish production in the 1940s that I think we had seen with Frankenstein, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man. Um, they become more for the kids over to, over the next few years. There is that feeling to them um, that yeah. they're, Hey, we're tapping into the children's market here is what it feels like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is there any, can anyone, I could not find a reason or, or any answer to this. I'm curious as to why Universal never returns to Lugosi for Dracula outside of Abbott and Costello meets. Like they do make more Dracula movies, but in when they make, Dracula's daughter in 1936. It doesn't focus on Dracula. When they return with Son of Dracula, it's Lon Chaney Jr. stepping into the main role. I'm curious as to, and it's not like Lugosi didn't need work. And it's also not like Universal felt like they felt like they didn't always, they, they felt like they could basically pay him what they wanted to, not what he would be worth in that role. Is there any reason why they never returned to him in that role when it probably would have been very lucrative? Like the first movie was like the sixth highest grossing movie of the year. 
it was such a massive success. Has anyone ever uncovered why they, they waited so long for him to return to play that role again? Uh, here's what I think it comes down to. I think by uh, 1943, uh, which is when Son of Dracula comes out. Okay. Um, Universal hated, like absolutely hated his performance in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman uh, as the monster. And he had, I think he was considered box office poison uh, to them by that point. And uh, where Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman was quite popular. So they were trying to find something besides the Wolfman. They were trying to groom um, Chaney Jr. into being their new Karloff or Lugosi because Karloff was sort of like, I'm done with you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ready to go on and do other things. He's with Val Luton. At this actually, point, right? this is before Val Luton. He's actually at Columbia okay. during this point. This point. Um, he's uh, during the early 40s. He's making uh, he makes a series of movies at Columbia, which are okay. pretty much all the same, though they're kind of fun to watch. Um, and so I think he was just kind of like considered persona non grata to them at this point. Um, and you literally have in two years after son of Dracula and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, you have Boris Karloff killing Bella Lugosi on screen. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like it, it, the, the metaphor is not lost on, on mm-hmm. people who are sort of familiar with, um, the decline of Bella Lugosi's career in that era. So, but even before that, because that's a good decade after Dracula. Yep. Like, why not go to that well in 1936 or go to that well Mm. in 1939 after his performance as Igor is so well regarded? Yeah, I I could not tell you. Okay, my understanding was the Dracula films, because Dracula is one of the great obsessions and studies was my of my life is that um, I always felt it was an intentional um, decision not to because I think they had a little more respect for Lugosi's performance, especially coming from the theater than Karloff's performance so that they were comfortable keeping churning out movies with the monster, Mm -hmm. but not as comfortable keeping churning out movies with, with Dracula himself. I think that was the decision between before to go to like Dracula's daughter and have a more spin-offy kind of approach to be like, oh, it's not, we're not repeating the same movie. Okay. Especially because when we made that movie, we made it twice. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not repeating that again. We're uh, telling, you know, a, a new story and kind of keeping a sense of reverence for mm-hmm. at least a little while for that character and that performance right. has always kind of been my understanding of it. That, that's so fascinating because... I mean, we talked about this in our Frankenstein episode. By the time Whale makes Frankenstein, like six months after Dracula's release, it feels like it's so far ahead of what Todd Browning did. And Mm -hmm. then you get to Bride of Frankenstein, and it's leap years ahead of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. That there's this reverence for that movie. And Lugosi's performance is wonderful. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it's a wonderful performance, but that you you would find like that the untouchable movie uh where Karloff is still not getting getting his 
just do, even though they're churning Karloff pictures out and giving him mm-hmm. top billing and starring roles at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both of Wales Frankenstein's are, I'm comfortable saying, miles ahead of yeah. Browning's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I honestly, I think it was just that Dracula was first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your Dracula was the pioneer universal movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So thanks that. So there are some rumors about this possibly being shot in color. Maybe not. Uh, Brian, you mentioned that there's like some color behind the scenes footage yeah. on surface, like some test footage. It's like a minute. And it's on YouTube mm-hmm. if you want to, if yep. you've ever seen it. And it's just a uh, Karloff in the full costume uh, and it's in color and you can, the green and everything. Uh, he's sort of sticking his tongue out at the camera. He sneaks up behind Jack Pierce and sort of puts his hands around his neck. And then they have a conversation and shake hands and they're laughing. And I mm-hmm. wish I could hear what they're saying, but there's no sound. Yeah. Um, so I, can you cut the makeup time down to two hours? <laughs> right, exactly. Four yeah. hours, man. Really? Yeah. Um, so, though I think by this time they probably had a pretty good system going, and you know mm-hmm. he's still using the the rubber head instead of the collodion built up and cotton uh, head and all that. Um, but uh, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't look like Technicolor. It's it's mm-hmm. it's handheld. Uh, so and. Technicolor cameras were gigantic and heavy, and um, so there wasn't a lot of hand-holding going on with those things. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's possible that it was like home movie footage, um, because I looked it up, and there was a color camera, uh, like 16 millimeter for home use camera um, available at that time. It was invented in 1935, so it would have been a pretty new thing, but, but... we just don't know for sure, but it's an interesting thought. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me considering like the production no. design of it and everything and the continuity with the previous era and the low budget nature of these movies yeah. that it would be in color. Um, it wouldn't look. Right. No, no. And it, it just, just um, the makeup is, is very, very green in this, in these pictures. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the impression that I got from, different things that I've heard was the makeup for the first two films was more of a blue, green, white sort of, so it would, so it would read white on screen rather than, yeah. And it's like a pistachio green. Yeah. It's very, it looks like that kind of light, light green. Yeah. So I think there's like his daughter, Sandra was born Mm -hmm. right around this time as well. And I think there are some like photos of Karloff on set. Like they brought like uh, he's celebrating her birth. Like they brought him a giant cake. Yep. Like he's blowing out candles. Well, it was his fiftieth birthday as well. So as well, yeah, so yeah. they were. And uh, Roland v-, uh, v. Lee, the director, would go on to say, like, it's where Lugosi and Karloff become friends uh, as well. Like, if there had been any animosity between them, because they're, you know, I think long-standing stories of Lugosi. Um, being maybe a little bit of jealous of Karloff star rising. And I think that's, you see that in Tim Burton's picture. Yeah. Um, but I think that is exaggerated. I think so a bit. too. Again, well, here, um, they, neither their, of their children, you know, Bella Lugosi mm-hmm. Jr. or Sandra Karloff um, say that they heard anyone, either of them say anything bad about the other person. Right. And, you know, every yeah. time that, Karloff was asked about Bella Lugosi. He just kind of looked sad and said, "Poor Bella." 
you know, yeah. the, you know, he really was, it seemed to, you know, feel, I, I mean, if he had, he, I don't know if he ever felt like he had any responsibility mm-hmm. in his uh, sort of downfall, but. Um, uh, so I think there are some uh, color photos of like uh, Karloff and the monster makeup and it's the behind the scenes, like birthday footage and celebrating his daughter's birth footage. I don't remember if there's footage of like Sandra on set, like bringing her on set, but Lee would say it was like one of the most fun shoots he ever did. Like there was a lot of laughter on set and it was like really enjoyable for everybody. So one of the things that's funny about that uh, footage is, you know, he's like, he's sticking out his tongue and he's smiling and laughing, Mm -hmm. you know, in the makeup. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of, think to yourself I, I wish i could hear what they're saying to each other here yeah you know because mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah right <laughs> so willis cooper is tapped to write the script and his original script is a retread of bride of frankenstein uh it's basically the i think they even show like her bones in the beginning of the movie but the monster still wants a friend and he is still threatening Frankenstein's family. This time it is Wolf von Frankenstein. He's threatening, like, make me a friend or else. Uh, the monster also is showing off a side of his personality where he's like Dr. Evil. He wants to conquer the world. Like he becomes more of a mustache twirling villain in this one. Like, bizarre. so that is very bizarre. Yeah. Um The Krogh character is much less sympathetic. He's like hounding... Uh, Wolf von Frankenstein over his father's experience. And instead of an angry mob chasing down Frankenstein's family and the creature this time, the creature would have been chased down by an army. And in the end, Wolf would have stabbed the monster to death before the monster could have performed brain surgery on Peter Wolf's son. The end. That would have been Cooper's script. So glad that one didn't get made. I think we got a bit of an upgrade. Um, I don't know that there is like an actual script for Son of Frankenstein, because what it sounds like is Rowland E. V. Uh, v. Lee wrote the script in his head minutes before going to shoot. Like a lot of this movie exists right in his imagination and then they would go shoot it. And we'll cover that for a little bit here. But what, uh, Brian and Nat, what can you, we talk about the man who was tapped to direct this movie, Mr. Rowland V. Lee? Do you know much, Nat? No. <laughs> okay. I can't say I know a lot either. Um, I just have uh, Mike's notes here. That's about it. Okay. Um, All right. So... Not a problem. So here's what I've got. He'd work with Karloff before in The Guilty Generation. And I couldn't quite confirm this, but there is a book called It's Alive by Julian David Stone, who it's a dramatization of how Frankenstein was made. Like the basically the week up before sh- shooting Frankenstein and all of the behind the scenes drama who was going to direct, who was going to star as the monster. And it condenses some things into that week. Like was Lemley senior actually going to allow Lemley jr. Make this movie. So it kind of condenses the timeline for dramatic purposes. But one of the storylines in there is that uh, 
when Karloff Jr. is working on when he's tapped to play the monster, he's also working on the guilty generation for, I believe it's Columbia pictures and he's under contract for so many days. He is not going to be able to get out of the shoot in time to play the monster. And the studio boss at Columbia is Harry Cohen, who is one of the real hard ass studio magnets that you don't cross. Like if you cross Cohen, your career is essentially dead. Like he will make sure you are blacklisted going forward. And Lee finds like it's, it's the, uh, it's a small part, but it's like a pretty good role. Like Karloff is well regarded for it. It's like a scene where Karloff is speaking on the phone and Lee finds a way to shoot it where Karloff is able to do everything in one day wrap all his lines, wrap production, and go shoot Frankenstein. And I wasn't able to confirm that in other places, but it if that did happen, it seems to like track with like what I've learned about Lee and other reading, that yeah. he was someone that wanted to make things happen for his performers. Like he would go to the mat, and you see that here with Bella Lugosi. And that actually and how he- sounds vaguely familiar to me. I, okay. Like I might have read it in a Karloff biography. Mm-hmm. I, I can't confirm it either, but okay. it sort of rings a bell. Okay. So Whale is like not interested at all at coming back for Son of Frankenstein. Like he's all done. Uh, by the time of Son of Frankenstein, by the time Lee is tapped to direct this, he already has 51 movies under his belt. He's done Count of Monte Cristo. He's done Three Musketeers. He has a reputation of being really easy to work with. He's really thoughtful. He's very skilled, but he's a bit of like a work for hire type. He's not considered a real auteur. And I found this quote. It's a really great article by William Fisher on Collider of like how Son of Frankenstein got made. He has this great perception on the role of of the director. Every time a director looks through his camera lens, he is looking directly into the eyes of millions upon millions of people. The vast audience is countless times greater than all of the persons who saw and heard Moses, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and all the other prophets combined. What a privilege. What an obligation. So it's kind of a guy that on one hand is a work for hire type. He can get the job done and get it done on time, but also like sees himself as like bigger than Jesus. So those two <laughs> things are hard to recon- reconcile. Um, but he's tapped to do this. Peter Lore was considered for the role of Wolf Frankenstein as was Claude Rains, um, but they were passed over for Basil Rathbone who I don't know much about aside that he played Sherlock Holmes. That was his big thing. He also, uh, yeah. he was in a f- quite a few you know, universal movies during this era. Um, Tower of London is kind of, is one of his better known ones from this period. So yeah, he had quite a long and successful career. One thing I note to note, Lee significantly beeped up the role of Igor. Uh, he allowed Lugosi to come up with the backstory and motivation for the character, and he let that inspiration carry over to the screen. Uh, the original shooting script had little, if any, Igor in it, and Lee wrote much of it on the fly. Uh, if Karloff's star had dimmed from the heights of Bride of Frankenstein, Lugosi, as we mentioned, truly had fallen on hard times. He was reliant on the Motion Picture Relief Fund for any income, and he had basically been unemployed since 1936. By 1938, he had lost his home. 
Universal, knowing they had leverage over a desperate Lugosi, they cut his rate. Like he was supposed to make $1,000 a week. They cut him to $500 a week. And Lee heard that and said, all right, well, I am just going to keep writing more material for you. And I am going to guarantee that you are going to be on this picture until the very last day of filming. Um, I have this quote from the article uh, talking about that and what he decided to do. It says, by then, Lee was attached to Son of Frankenstein as producer and director, and the film was considered in production. After receiving Universal's new terms, Lugosi and his wife pleaded for with Lee for aid. In an interview with Mank, Lillian Lugosi took great delight in relating his response. Uh, that would be Lee's response. Those goddamn sons of bitches. I'll show them. I'm going to keep Bella on this picture from the first day of shooting right up to the last. So he basically let Universal know, okay, if you're going to cut his pay in half, I'll make sure he's going to earn every bit of pay he would have made if he made a grand. And this is, I think, Lugosi's like, best role like i think this is better than dracula i love absolutely love lugosi and he is the star of this movie like karloff Mm -hmm. is a distant third Mm -hmm. um filming begins november 9th 1938 ward goes back to the studio lee is working quote without script and i found these production notes november 19th We are still operating without a completed script, receiving only a few pages spasmodically, but just before we complete a sequence. November 26th, we are still operating under the most difficult circumstances to make a picture. That is, without script, which prevents us from laying out a schedule or figuring a budget. December 10th, we still have no script upon which to base this estimated final day of shooting. Lee should be in a better position than we are to know just how much he has left to do because the story, and I love this, appears to be altogether in his mind. So this is just Lee winging it on set. This is brilliant. I love this. That's wild. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, especially at this time, that's just not how movies were made Mm -hmm. at all. (laughs) Yeah. And because like Hollywood back then is less a writer's game and more, uh, sorry, more a write, director's gig and more a writer's gig, right? I it feels like writers and producers are the ones in ultimate control. Yeah, I mean writers didn't get paid much, but they, well, as oh, okay. is still the case, but they um, maybe I'm thinking just producers well, are the but ones. But the script was control. king, though. I mean, you shot the script. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what was submitted to the Hayes Code was the script. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. So Mm -hmm. I found this other note because Lee kept Cooper on hand to quote unquote, do the last minute rewrites. Like he basically would dictate to Lee and the store is obviously far different because there's no army. There's no mustache twirling Frankenstein demanding another mate and then trying to commit, uh, do brain surgery on Peter. Um, Cooper would write a script for the radio thriller Quiet Please. Uh, There was an episode called Rain on New Year's Eve, and it's about a writer being held prisoner by the director of a, quote, poor man's Frankenstein. And it's basically Cooper like writing through his feelings. Uh, You can find this episode on YouTube. I plan on 
sitting down and listening to it, uh, maybe during the next snow or rainstorm. It's about 20 minutes in length. I'll maybe plug it here in the show notes, but it's like Cooper's like, fuck you to Lee for keeping him on hand and having his whole script redone. Uh, I just find that is just really brilliant right there. So it's funny. Lee wrapped filming on January 4th, 1939 movie came in at about 120 K over budget. It was about 400 grand altogether. Uh, He had three days to edit and score the movie for a studio preview three days. That's incredible. The cast uh, aside, um, Lugosi made what would amount to like 80 grand in 2023 for his work. Uh, Lee kept his promise. Lee made the three-day deadline. He got the movie edited and scored for this preview. And it was released January 13th, uh, 1939. uh, And we're recording on January 13th, 2024, which wasn't planned, but happy anniversary, son of Frankenstein, you Mm -hmm. son of a bitch. Yeah, I saw that this morning and thought, well, that is just fortuitous. This is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So we're wearing party hats. We have streamers. Happy 85th. There's a cake. Yeah. Always an excuse for a cake. All right. We've talked Lugosi. We've talked Karloff. We got to talk about one other person who, if he's not going to be a major player in the next five movies, he's kind of our utility infielder. He's going to (laughs) come in. He's going to do whatever he's asked to do. Mr. Lionel Atwill, who here he's going to play the one-armed Inspector Krogh, and he's going to knock it out of the park. Like this is, this is his best role in any of the five. Frankenstein's oh, yeah. will see him. Yeah, um, Brian, I in that I in Jess, I feel like y'all could speak about because I've gone on for about ten minutes now, and if anybody would like to chime in on Mr. Atwill before I talk about maybe the seedier side of him <laughs> let's give him his flowers first okay yeah um because his performance kind of makes this movie along mm-hmm. with Lugosi but um he represents so many of my favorite things about this movie which is he is the stand-in for the entire village in so many ways because what is singularly funny about this movie to me that's why i revisit this movie so often is that wolf is has such an uphill battle from the beginning to try and win these people over and he does not even try (laughs) and that is the funniest thing about but the inspector represents all of that as he is laden with ptsd and he has this entire horrific backstory that he relates to wolf because he's like the guy who's like i am on your side man i am trying so hard to help you and it's just there's two of my favorite scenes in this movie are one the monologue where he explains the arm Mm -hmm. and wolf barely listens and then my single favorite shot in the movie that's just genuinely great performing on his part is when uh, the boy is talking about meeting the monster mm-hmm. and um, and he his giant friend. And he talks about the giant taking him by the arm. And there is a cutaway to the inspector touching mm-hmm. his own arm as he hears it. That is, that's my single favorite yeah. shot in the film. 
I love that. His his and the acting he does with his eyes there too, is he like glances over towards Wolf, who's trying not to look at the inspector. Like that's a great mm-hmm. I definitely want to get into the back and forth between Wolf and Krug throughout this picture. Cause I think it's some of the genuinely best acting intensest moments in this movie for sure Mm -hmm. what else before son of frankenstein he had quite a run in a number of universal and horror films before this and had appeared with basil rathbone before like what what made lionel atwell such like a great character actor in especially in like genre films I think he's fantastic in uh, the pair of Warner Brothers films that came out in 1932, 33, uh, Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum. Um, he's he's just kind of, he's just fantastic in these. And um, those are cool movies. And I love that we finally have been able to see them in full color. Or full two strip Technicolor, so not technically full mm-hmm. color, but you know what I mean. Um, we've been those have finally been restored after all these years, and um, he's so fun in those. Uh, Doctor X, especially, I think is just a blast. Um, the uh, the, <laughs> the synthetic flesh thing is just like kind of hilarious and kind of amazing and yeah, I, I have a great time with that movie. The Mystery of the Wax Museum, of course, was remade in. 53 uh, with Vincent Price's House of Wax. Um, and he, it's essential. It's the movies are really similar. But what's great about those are directed by Michael Curtiz. Um, so they've got sort of that uh, great quality of his work behind it and sort of an expressionist feel that you see in, you know, the whale films as well. So it's, it's, it's great. And, um, so he's got so Atwill has some genre credibility behind him before he mm-hmm. gets to Son of Frankenstein and sort of finishes out the franchise with um, mm-hmm. the various versions. I mean, it's different versions of the Krogue character, more or less, uh, but without the missing arm and just not as fleshed out and not quite as interesting. I really love Lionel Atwill. I. Th- something a lot of my favorite character actors have in common is they have this undercurrent of humor and intelligence. You, I always feel like there's more going on. They're bringing more to a character than what's on the page, which, and I'd like to talk about the script later on um, because I think that's really fascinating the way they were kind of um, flying, you know, kind of working without a net there. Um, Inspector Kemp is who you're thinking of, by the way, mm-hmm. um, in Young Frankenstein. And I found Krogh so funny and I couldn't tell how much of that was me projecting from Young Frankenstein and how much mm-hmm. of it was the film itself. I'm, I I need to revisit Son of Frankenstein several times to kind of extricate it from my experience. <laughs> uh, I need but to revisit Young Frankenstein. Yeah. It's been 20 yeah. years, I think, since I've watched it. Personally, yeah. I don't feel like Kenneth Mars really exaggerates except for like the really really thick <laughs> accent and you know like the monocle mm-hmm. on top of the eye it doesn't seem like he exaggerates that much he, from no. Atwell, and i love that. yeah at will yeah. when he's doing the really mechanical movements I, like it's mm-hmm. already all there anyway like yeah. he's just replicating it rather than exaggerating and Atwell has those pipes like they that deep authoritative voice mm-hmm. where like he immediately commands your respect mm-hmm. um can we can we talk? We're gonna. I, I guess now is as good of a time to talk about it 
So I don't know if we're going to talk about at will as much in the next four movies. So he'll show up in the, in five Frankenstein movies. He's going to exit as the same, at the same time as Jack Pierce. Uh, neither Pierce nor Atwill will be in the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein movie. He'll play a different character, as Brian mentioned, in each of these films. He leaves for a different reason than Jack Pierce, uh, for personal reasons, uh, scandal. So he married four or five times. Um, as did most of these guys, I shouldn't mention. A lot of yeah. Karloff Karloff also married did, five times. Um, yeah, was yeah. He married four or five yeah, times. Vincent um, Price. Price, yeah. he his had this thing about homes, like one of his homes, like burned to the ground in California. I think one washed out to sea on the East Coast. Um, but what really did him in was uh, rumors over his like sexual proclivities. There were long rumors in Hollywood that his Palisades home doubled basically as a venue for hosting orgies and screening pornographic films which would have been illegal at that time. Mm-hmm. Like that would have been very illegal. And at, uh, at will himself was rumored to have directed some of these movies. It was also rumored that some of the women that performed in them were not at the age of consent and also maybe not performing um, of their own volition as well. So, there's an incident that's been dubbed the Yuletide orgy in the winter of 40 or 41, where a guest eventually tries to blackmail him. And the case ends up in court where Atwill commits perjury saying no such sex parties have ever taken place. And he also bribes a convicted check forger to back up his story. In June of 41, a jury decides they believe Atwill's testimony and that all that's going on at his home is good, clean, wholesome fun at his estate. I think they think, oh, yeah, they're watching like travelogue videos, like, you know, where people go on vacation. Later that year, the Yuletide Affair is back in court for a different case. And I found an article from the Philly Inquirer where I'm going to bring it up. I won't read the whole article because there's some racially incentive insensitive comments in here but like the first section of it headline is lionel atwill's home revealed an orgy trial at nude revel scene and folks they don't write headlines like no this that, anymore. that's something. so special to the inquirer los angeles may 12 an attorney slip of the tongue in open court lifted the lid off the hollywood orgy scandal today and revealed for the first time that the nude revel to which 16-year-old from Hibbling, Minnesota, was a witness took place in the beach home of Lionel Atwill, noted actor of stage and screen, was testifying before Superior Judge Thomas Ambrose in the trial of Virginia Lopez, her roommate, on a morals charge. She had just told how embarrassed she was was when attacked by Eddie LaRue, a movie colony figure, in the presence of Miss Lopez, at will named, and you were embarrassed when you cavorted in the nude at the home of Lionel Atwill last December in front of six people, three of whom you had never met before, asked Donald McKay, counsel for Miss Lopez. Before Sylvia could answer, Assistant District Attorney Roll objected. The Atwill party is now before the grand jury and should not be dragged into this case. 
Following a huddle by the attorneys for both sides with Judge Ambrose, the question remained unanswered, but was not stricken from the record. So basically now Atwill has to go back to court because he's been named in this case without being expected to. And he has to admit, I committed perjury last year uh, when I was on the stand uh, in my earlier case. He's indicted. He's found guilty. He's given five years probation. The judge goes easy on him. He commutes the sentence and he expunges the record. But the damage is done in Atwill because of the Hayes Code. And Hayes is like, we are not allowing you to hire anybody like this. And the studios basically blacklist him. He's only going to get tiny roles in Poverty Row pictures until his death from lung cancer in 1946. So pretty sad end. And again, like... A lot of the stuff is hearsay. There's nothing that's necessarily. There's a lot of different stories, so who knows? Um, but it is very weird thinking of like this guy Lionel Atwell playing these roles, being the guy that is like apparently hosting the wildest like boogie night style sex parties back in the 30s and 40s, and also getting dragged in front of a court for like cavorting nude like wow <laughs> what would the 30s have done with only fans like if you had only fans in the 1930s the country would have imploded yeah. it just would have been we would not we would well we think of here. the past as being some sort of chase time but hey people had the same kinks and passions that they yeah. do now so <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun well there's that have you seen you've seen the holdovers you know the part where he shows him the oh, yeah. the plate you know the ancient plate that's got the uh mm-hmm. the porn on it um yeah mm-hmm. there you go okay. yeah so let's talk about this movie we've talked about the background we went deep and again i think this might be the last one till we get to the Abbott and Costello that there's like a lot of production information, but we'll see. But let's start at the end because I think one of the things is the enduring legacy of this movie. And I know Nat, that's something you're very interested in. And Jess, like you came to this movie after young Frankenstein really. And I'm wondering, is this, is that the enduring legacy of this movie that it serves as the template for young Frankenstein and what is it about young Frankenstein that made it kind of like endure in the pop culture so much? Cause I, it's something I've been interested in for years because Mel Brooks is one of my favorite filmmakers just in general, because every parody he does is done with so much reverence and style for the films that he, in the style of the films that he's parodying and young Frankenstein is fascinating because like, I also love Dracula Dead and Loving It, which he did years and years later. Mm-hmm. But Dracula Dead and Loving It takes the original Dracula as its template because there is so much dead air in that movie mm-hmm. to layer jokes over the top of. And the approach with Young Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein is so different because Son of Frankenstein is already so funny in so many ways. And conceptually in the way that wolf just just keeps like slamming on his face in front of these people mm-hmm. and had how little he barely tries to hide what he's doing it's like 
there was already so much that was funny about this movie that Brooks just kind of cranked it all the way up and like broke the dial. And I think because of that, because he recognized the potential in this film uh, to set that kind of story that I think that is a huge part of its legacy along with the look of the monster and how that persisted um, so much through pop culture in the 60s and the 70s, especially in the 70s being the, the Marvel comic template for their Monster of Frankenstein series. Even, I forgot what I was going to say. But uh, yeah, those were kind of, oh, even Igor, just the name Igor stemming from this movie, right. even though pop culturally, ego is an amalgamation of mad scientist assistant tropes this is still right here like the birth mm-hmm. of ego there's so much that we recognize of frankenstein and pop culture that you're not going to see when you just go be like oh i'm going to watch the original frankenstein right. and think you're going to see all these things so much comes from this movie what about the look of the monster too because i feel like there was a time especially with things like famous monsters that like the um, woolly shirted monster was even more pervasive than the black suit coated monster for a time. Mm -hmm. Like that seemed to be something we would see everywhere as well. That's funny because that's not something I really saw until Mm -hmm. much later, you know, when I, found like the you know things you wanted to know about monsters but were afraid to ask book i i hadn't seen that look um for the monster uh until later somehow i had seen the the sweater and the suit coat the most mm-hmm. often i was even kind of surprised when i finally saw bride you know to see you know it's torn up and stuff you know yeah. so because i was just so used to the original look from the first film yeah yeah, yeah i think um I think what young Frankenstein does, I agree with Nat that the reverence and the affection that Mel Brooks has for the original films and for James Whale and for Sun um, is part of why young Frankenstein kind of helps cement the legacy of the original Frankenstein films. Not that they needed assistance in that regard, but it's kind of making a great film, a gorgeous film. Young Frankenstein is really beautiful. Like obviously it uses a lot of the same sets and everything, but it's shot really beautifully. Um, making this great film, sending up these originals, but in an affectionate way, I think that's really key rather than doing it in a condescending or mean spirited way. It's very affectionate, very respectful, Mm -hmm. but still very funny. Um, and I, it's really interesting to me seeing the humor, evolve from film to film because bride is hilarious son is hilarious and and there's a lot of humor you know in the original as well it's i think it can be easy especially for younger people or people who don't have as much context for older films to assume that they're dry and not very funny like we were talking about you know with sex parties like people assume things that happened before them were boring and there's no sex there's no humor there's nothing but it these movies are very, very funny. And I think it just kind of submits that legacy and underscores 
you know, go back and reevaluate because this is funnier than you remember. There's inherent humor there, but, you know, Whale had the camp factor and Sun is just so dry and funny. Um, And I, my experience with the fuzzy vested Frankenstein, I think of that as hippie Frankenstein because that's very (laughs) 60s and 70s to me. (laughs) Um, But that was something that I grew up with and didn't really know where it came from until I saw Sun. So it's really Mm -hmm. interesting kind of connecting the pop culture dots there. Um, But yeah, I just Igor as a pop culture figure is really interesting to me. It's kind of dropped out of no, not out of nowhere, but dropped out of from this film. That's not as well known as the original and bride. Um, But yeah, I think people watch Dwight Fry and Frankenstein and assume that he's not named Fritz, that he's named Igor. I think that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that we talked about. No, it's Fritz. Um, But that's like the template. And then you watch, this and it's like Igor, like Lugosi is Igor. You can forget that, like that is like that what the characters they or that is like where all of the future like hunchback assistants come from. And I guess that leads to my kind of like next question. I wonder if this movie almost gets passed over. Like every article I read, at least there was at least one sentence that said, "When considering the Frankenstein movies, everyone talks." James Whale's two entries, but immediately kind of glosses over Son of Frankenstein. And it does feel like this one maybe gets a little bit of a short shift or short shrift when it comes to like the original, like we talked, like we were going to only do the first three movies because it felt like the three strongest before we decided to do all of them. But even that, like this feels like it gets glossed over compared to Whale's films in terms of its how people regard its impact and um, where it stands in terms of uh, its cultural cachet and importance. Well, like we said, you know, even we are probably not going to have a three hour conversation on this one, Mm -hmm. but I mean, which, you know, Hey, if we do, we do. Um, But uh, it's, I think there is the perception, you know, like, okay. in, In gods and monsters, the movie, um, James Whale says he made the first two and the rest were made by hacks. And uh, I think that's sort of a, the perception that comes from this. And this one, I, I think this has a lot of style, uh, particularly in the visuals. I think it has a lot of callbacks to some of the same kinds of things that Whale was inspired by, like the, uh, the German expressionist look. There's, I think there's, in some ways more of that German expressionism here Mm -hmm. than there is in the whale films. Um, There's a lot going Mm -hmm. for this one. And uh, it's sort of a continuation of the humor, the kind of humor we found in, in the, the first, in the second film um, in particular, but um, yeah, maybe because it's just not directed by a quote unquote auteur that mm-hmm. it is sort of given it's knocked down a little bit in, in some of those respects. And, you know, personally, I think it's probably the third best movie, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I, I do really like it a lot. And I think it has a lot more going for it than is often uh, credited to it. Yeah. I think it's also, it's just 
especially with its legacy now for trying to convince people to watch it now. It's easy to convince people to watch the first two Frankensteins and not so much the rest of the series. And I think it's just for Horford, it's the curse of the beloved sequel mm. where you have a sequel that is like the most beloved of all time. And then you have the ones after it that people are not going to be as, as open to because this is the one. It reminds me in a lot of respects of another movie that I've been on this podcast about, which is Alien 3, mm-hmm. where you had Aliens. It was like the biggest sequel like success ever. And then you have an attempt to go back to the tone of the first, but people loved the second one so much. And I think that is a bit of the... Uh, issue that people often i see having with son of frankenstein which is the monster's not talking again we've kind of gone back to a basics approach even though so much of that humor carries over and it has so much of its own distinct style it's like people wanted a lot more of what the second one was doing and it is hard to live up to the legacy of bride of frankenstein which is considered like the peak of universal monster movies. Like it's considered the best one. I have that as my, I think the best of them. And then like maybe the invisible man or the original Frankenstein for me, like it kind of alternates between those two for me. Cause the invisible man is just like so much fun and another like really good black comedy and the effects still hold up to this day as well. That almost anything would seem like a letdown. But like this on its own, I think, has a lot going for it. Uh, We've kind of touched a little bit on the design, and I made the comment in my notes that I do miss a little bit of James Whale's kind of production design savvy, like having these really lush, elaborate sets, like the kind of um, contrast in the two forests that you see in Bride of Frankenstein when the monster first enters and it's very ornate and beautiful versus when he's chased down and it's like desolate and barren. Uh, the opulence of the house of Frankenstein and Victor's lifestyle. Uh, and then that richness of the village in the original Frankenstein, when the villagers are like celebrating the soon to be wedding. Um, I miss a little bit of that here, but I know the three of you disagree. Like you've said, no, like you actually, love the look so speak to that speak to uh what really stands out in the and there are some things i really like here as well but what stands out in terms of lee's the worldly builds here i think i I do love the look of the first two films i'm not disparaging those in the slightest i love them it's the gothic atmosphere is incredible i think one scene in particular that stuck out to me when uh Wolf and his wife are at the dining room table and it's mm-hmm. this really stark empty room. It's really cavernous with these angled shadows or light from a window against the wall. It's really avant-garde. It It's uh, going back to what Brian said about it leans more into German expressionism. It has, it reminds me of a shot from night of the hunter with mm. these really steep angles and it feels to me like like a, a Kafka adaptation or a Pinter play or something where it's really kind of leaning into the surreal, like the 
unreality is heightened in this movie to me, which I really appreciate. It feels like when they descend on Frankenstein, they're entering a different world and kind of how stark and minimalist the sets are adds to that for me. So I think it just, it heightens the horror, but it also heightens the humor because it is so exaggerated, but we still feel kind of like we're in the real world. But I just, I really like how much it leans into it. It feels like a snow globe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like that kind of like you could shake it up at any time. It feels like you're looking in on that. Yeah. And speaking of snow globes, I think the design of Frankenstein's Manor in particular reminds me of Xanadu Mm -hmm. and Citizen Kane, uh, because Mm -hmm. there are like these big fireplaces, all the, but then there's like all this empty space that makes it look massive, even though it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily that big um, in reality. Um, And so those angular, you know, pillars and different things that are in the rooms, uh, the site like decoration is, is much more minimal. There's like nothing. Um, and then there's those, like the chairs and stuff are just gigantic. And so it just sort of dwarfs all the actors a little bit. And it just Mm -hmm. gives this sense of the wealth and opulence of the Frankensteins achieved through just minimal choices. And I think that, Mm -hmm. um, goes a long way for me. Yeah. 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 Um, my uh, favorite, I also made a note of the production design because for me, I love the combination of like art deco, German expressionism style. So it looks like a weird cross between Batman, the animated series yeah. and uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, what I love is that like you, you have all this angular exaggerated stuff and you don't have necessarily the gothic style of james whale except because so much of the action is centered on on inside the house in this movie and what i love is that you have all of that james whale style just outside the window you can see the spindly trees and the raging storm through the window so what it feels like i don't know if it was remotely intentional or not but it's part of the genius one of the smartest things about the movie for me is that it feels like all of that is being kept at bay it's like the the storm that was his his father's Mm -hmm. you know story is just outside the walls and we're like closed off from it but we can still see it we can still feel it creeping in well to me the way that thunder and lightning storm hits like whether you're watching the couple like on the train make their way to castle Frankenstein or when they're watching it outside that gorgeous, like bay window and they're watching, you have that large, like basically dead tree that the lightning keeps threatening to strike. And you see like the pounding rain. I think that is like probably some of the best detail. And to me, it's still one of the best thunder and lightning storms in like a horror movie ever. And I think it's a really wonderful detail. That was like the one production note that I really love about this movie. Uh, and just like watching, watching the the Eastern European landscape pass in front of them when they're riding the train, I thought train, I thought was a really beautiful detail as well. Uh, I really loved that. What stood out on my last rewatch, there was a moment at the end when the creature is holding 
Peter's book. It's mm-hmm. a, a book of fairy tales. And what struck me was thinking back to the way the exterior buildings look, and especially those windows where you've mentioned like the very sharp angular look and the windows are not squared off. Like the windows have these really odd angles that all the panes sit in, even within like the four panes themselves, they sit at odd degrees. And to me, they exterior buildings and the way the molding looks, the way the roofing is set, they look like illustrations at times out of a children's fairy tale book. And you're almost like seeing a children's fairy, a fairy tale externalized and then brought to the screen. And I thought that was like a, maybe like a visual detail that Lee was bringing out here as well. So I thought that was fascinating as well. Cause he's showing, showing Peter's book. I know you're partly doing that because you're watching the cre- uh, light bulb go off in the creature's brain. Like, Oh, I will set my evil plan into motion, but I thought it connected the two worlds a little bit there as well. So different from Wales look and I can appreciate what you're all saying too about why that starkness but it is so much different from what we've seen in those first two and hey who doesn't love a good sulfur pit as well right I mean every movie should have that um this is yet another movie about a son trying to measure up to the legacy of his father like we've talked about that in the original Frankenstein Uh, To a certain degree, Bride of Frankenstein with the monster demanding his father make him a creature. And here you have Wolf trying to, in some ways, redeem the legacy of Henry von Frankenstein. But very early on, we know that like Wolf doesn't know his father. He's only heard stories about him. Everything he knows about his father comes secondhand from his mother, Elizabeth. So that gives us a little bit of information that after Bride, one of two things happened. Either Henry died very soon after, or the marriage was a very short one, and Elizabeth escaped with her child to England first, and then eventually the United States, in that Wolf heard great stories about his dad, but never got to know the man personally. And I find that really fascinating. That's also one of the funniest things about the movie mm-hmm. for me is that he's just, he walks into town and everybody has this generational trauma mm-hmm. of what his father did to this town. And uh, he just is immediately like, yeah, I ain't reading all that. Uh, I'm happy for you though. We're sorry it happened. But it's just like, he never met the man. He is so sick. He didn't know the man, but instead of listening to anything they're saying, he's just like, yeah, it really sounds like you guys deserved what was coming to you. Uh, it sounds like my dad was the coolest dude that ever lived. I'm really sorry for you. When he says, like, I didn't know my dad, but I'm, he, your struggles were in the front of his mind. He was a great man. And then everybody grumbles and walks away. It's, yes. it's awesome. It's really... You see the look on his face, like just belly flops into it. It is great. How how many, well, the best time he puts his foot in his mouth in the whole movie is like, did you even see this monster that my father made? And he's like, he ripped my fucking arm off. 
is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic shot with all the the umbrellas mm-hmm. gathered, but it's also positively Springfieldian with the um, people drifting away and drifting off, and the comedic timing is very Simpsons <laughs> for me. I really love it. Yeah, but there is this idea that in some ways, like Wolf feels this obligation. Like, why even return to his father's ancestral home in the first place? Like, seems like he has quite a good life in America. Like, he's a college professor. And he's a college professor at a time where that would be like a very stable, well-paying job during a time of, like, great economic uncertainty. So he has a pretty cushy life. Like, the Frankensteins are obviously a family of great, already great means and great wealth. So it's not like they're returning to his home out of desperation. Like, well, this is it. Like, we have nothing else. We have to return home because we have nowhere else to go. But he feels a sense of of a calling in a certain way because he feels like his father has done this thing that in some ways is great, but it's great and also terrible. Like, I imagine that it's a very long shadow to live under that your dad his created life from scratch. Like he's the first person to do that. And you are, I don't even know what he was a doctor of, um, but you feel like no matter what you've done, like you're not going to live up to like, you're always going to fall somewhere beneath, uh, somewhere beneath him in the pecking order. And you're not going to leave the same legacy behind. I'm sure you want to scratch that itch a little bit more once your own son's Peter is born and you start thinking about like, well, what is my legacy going to be? And now what is Peter's legacy going to be after that? But you're right, Nat, he ain't listening to a damn person in the town of Frankenstein, which Mm -hmm. it's not named Frankenstein in the first two movies. Like it's somewhere along the line. The town is named Frankenstein, which you Mm -hmm. think with all of them gone, they could rename it. (laughs) something else (laughs) but they just want to underscore and remind themselves of their Mm -hmm. you know collective trauma for generation Mm -hmm. from generation i don't know (laughs) these burgermeisters are not very efficient but it's also a movie about brothers like i think igor at one point points out you know like your father you know you are your father's son but so is the creature Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Like, you know, your father was also the father to this creature. And the father essentially abandoned both of his sons. Neither of the sons knows their father. Karloff doesn't get a lot to do here. If there's one thing about this movie is Karloff does take a backseat. And I think, Brian, you even noted he gets second billing under Rathbone. He really should be third. He should be in this one. He just doesn't have that much to do for so much of it. He's Mm -hmm. just laying on the table for so long or just kind of jerking around, you know, it's, that's a bad choice of words, but you know what? I just sort of lumbering around the place, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, it's sort of the, Except for a couple of moments, a couple of scenes, it's sort of the caricature that Lugosi talked about it being and why he didn't want to play the yeah. character, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he's more or less used as the blunt instrument of revenge for a 
big portion of this movie as well. Mm-hmm. well you know, it's sort of a continuation and sort of the next step after what Pretorius was using him for mm-hmm. uh, in in the previous yeah. film. So. Right, and they go back to the eugenics argument, mm-hmm. or at least Wolf. Yeah, does. like Wolf is there. Like Wolf is excusing his father's mistakes. Yeah, like Wolf says, if it wasn't for like a hunt, and I believe even he's like a hunchbacked evil assistant. Yeah who put like an abnormal brain in the creature, he would have been fine. And they spend like, all did. of Bride of Frankenstein ignoring that plot mm-hmm. point. Um, yeah. So, and they spend, frankly, like most Bride of the of- first movie ignoring that plot point too. Yeah. Well, it's almost like Bride of Frankenstein doesn't exist mm-hmm. in this world, right? It's almost like, um, I'm trying to think of like other... See, like, well, it's almost like the last Skywalker, like the last Skywalker does everything to, you know, wipe out like the movie, but the the movie before it. Right. It's just like, yeah, that sequel never happened. Like, that's what Son of Frankenstein is kind of doing here. Um, They David Gordon Green it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Son of Frankenstein, the first requel, perhaps. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but there are some moments of brilliance with Karloff. There are some really wonderful moments. And I'm wondering if this first moment, when Karloff first sees Wolf, do you feel, and he's like parring at his face and looking at him and going back and forth, do you feel there's some recognition there? Do you feel that he recognizes him as his kin in that moment. I do. I do think it's meant for recognition, but I also think even on the monsters, right, even though the monster is barely conscious in this one, there's still a moment of like, ah, shit. Mm -hmm. Here we go again. There's another one. When Karloff is allowed to um tap into the pathos of the monster like there's real beauty there like the oh god i'm still alive the kind of an existential spiral and then um but also just the recognition seeing a familiar face and um like i i do think the idea of using him as a blunt instrument and the monster being used is a really fascinating idea that can be done well when it's not just rinse and repeat um so i like that moment a lot and a couple of the other moments where karloff really gets to shine in this movie yeah mm-hmm. i really love the scene where karloff sees himself in the mirror yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think yeah. that is comes the closest to tapping into sort of the empathetic elements of the first two um it's sort of extending the sequence from the second movie where he sees his face in the water yeah. And mm-hmm. he, 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 at first he's like, he is, what is that thing? You know, and then he realizes, mm-hmm. you know, by touching the rope yeah. that it's, that it's himself. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's very heartbreaking the way that's played. And um, Karloff doesn't get a ton to do um, with that in, in this one, like in the previous. So uh, it's good that there's something there though. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the the mirror sequence is actually the sad out of the three movies. It's actually the saddest sequence for the monster because it's the moment the monster rejects himself, mm-hmm. like when he finally realizes, like this is me. He completely and utterly 
rejects himself. And I think this is where like the monster not speaking actually works because you only get those guttural grunts and the physical Mm -hmm. acting that is done here in Carlos part, I think says more than like the words could because it's really heartbreaking. Um, Oh, it's heartbreaking because of the line I work. I do. I listen to people reject themselves every day. Uh, And it's always heartbreaking when persons do that and to watch the creature do this in such a visceral, physical way. And then he drags Wolf over and does a side by side comparison of just like the physical features of the two. And you see him like look at Wolf and his like in Basil Rathbone is like a very attractive person for his day. And then he looks at himself and then he rejects himself again. And there's that pleading thing that Karloff does mm-hmm. as the monster. Where he outstretches both yeah. arms and makes those kind of like semicircles with his arms. Like, and he's almost saying like, couldn't you be a doctor of plastic surgery? Like, <laughs> could you uh, fix my face up a little bit? Maybe like, you know, give me some features here. Um, And I think that's a really wonderful moment. It's the other moment he has is like the whale of grief when he discovers Igor's body is a genuine, because I think that is a real friendship between them. It's not just what the later movies will be like, all right, sick the monster on somebody, Mm -hmm. but there is a real kind of like buddy comedy aspect to their relationship. And when he sees Igor dead, there's this real sadness that, and that he lets out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those moments of like reaching and yearning always almost make me cry. And, you know, in the original, when he's reaching out to Maria and it's interesting that it's always with water or a mirror, you know, mm-hmm. with Maria by the water and then seeing his own reflection, those, uh, gestures outward and finally kind of shutting down. I like seeing the evolution across the three movies yeah. of that, but just those simple, just reaching outward and f- hitting a brick wall between himself and somebody else, even if mm-hmm. it's um, transparent. I've, I really love that. And I, yeah. I, I love seeing that across you know, even Karloff's non Frankenstein performances, that kind of reaching out for humanity that mm-hmm. he's so good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Although despite, yeah. Oh, sorry, Nat, you first. Oh, I was just going to comment on, as we were talking about the relationship between, um, uh, Igor and the monster, mm-hmm. which is one of the strengths of the movie. Um, to me, it felt very much like, um, you know, of Mice and Men was hot off the presses at this time. And it's a little like if George and Lenny like were murderers, if instead of being like, <laughs> Lenny, don't kill people, it's like, Lenny, don't kill people except the ones on my shopping mm-hmm. list. Right. These are the <laughs> names of people you're allowed to kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's something very darkly funny about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is the monster at his most monstrous here like because he's not just he knows what he's doing like there's that scene at the apothecary where he's like ducking behind the window pulling down the shade uh and then giving him a judo chop which the judo chop is awesome like that is (laughs) that is so good um but like the monster is seems like he's in a possesses his wits about him and knows exactly what he's doing 
and is more than happy. Let's talk about the wielder of that blunt instrument. And let's talk about the man who really steals the show here. And I do have like one quick production note, like what Lee said about his work with Lugosi, um, that when he finished shooting, there was no doubt in anyone's mind, he being Lugosi stole the show. And that he said, uh, Lee said, Karloff's work was weak by comparison, uh, which is like, wow. Like Lugosi does really steal the show here. I like and prefer Lugosi's Igor to his work as Dracula. And I think partly because I prefer comedy and Lugosi is an absolute goddamn hoot is Igor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like just that introduction with Wolf when he's like, why'd you try to kill me? I thought you were trying to kill me. It's like, Oh, son of a bitch. So good. Mm-hmm. What do we make and what are some of the highlights here and why is this so memorable? The thing that stood out to me was um, the the fact that um, Lugosi, uh, the amount of freedom he had with the character mm-hmm. was the thing that I knew most about this movie um, from its production standpoint was just I knew how free he was to almost make it up on the spot. And that's what it's always felt like to me when I watch this movie is it feels like it feels like someone on SNL being like, I've been working on this character. Let me show it to you. Mm -hmm. And it just absolutely has the vibe of a comedian with like this thing where like, like, Oh my God, I've been working on this guy. Let me, let me let him loose. And uh, it is just so funny how much freedom he's given to go completely off the wall with it. Yeah, he's clearly having the time of his life with it. Like, I, I kept making notes of his dialogue just because I, I I made a lot of notes on the dialogue because the script, I was obsessed. But the way he says he does things for me, just the relish in his voice. It is mm-hmm. so funny and so creepy. And when he's up, but his mother was lightning. Like I just, uh, I, it gave me chills, but it was also very like funny and melodramatic, but creep. It's just poetry. I, I'm obsessed with how much fun he's having with this role. Absolutely. What else stood out to you about Lugosi's delivery? Like what other lines and in particular, how he delivered them stood out to you, Jess? Honestly, those were the two that I made notes on, like he does Mm -hmm. things for me. I think I rewound it three or four times just to Mm -hmm. listen to him say that just, there was, there was a little too much sexual frisson on it for my, like it was for my comfort, but I loved it at the same time. I almost joked about that right now. I'm like, did you think they were maybe like just two men there? No, they have explored each other's bodies. He does things (laughs) for him. I'm sorry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, and I, I really appreciate that they added I mean, this is already a perverted story. Like you can't watch Bride of Frankenstein and, you know, <laughs> but yeah. I like that they added even more on top of it. It's just, they're yeah. really going for it, which I appreciate. Yeah. Well, also like everyone underestimates Igor. Mm-hmm. That is part of the beauty here too, is everyone just thinks of Igor as this kind of like dim witted hunchback mm-hmm. that they can kind of like Lord over. They literally like just throw him in the old castle and to be done with him. And he plays Wolf like a fiddle, like absolutely manipulates Wolf 
and he's able to play on Wolf's ego and his eccentricities and Wolf's own insecurities about his lack of a relationship with the dad. But Igor is also able to manipulate the council of the Burgermeisters. Like, and aside from like the fear of being hung again, he doesn't show any fear or any sort of deference to them. And when one of them says like, I'll hang you again myself. He's like you on your own. Like it took eight of you last time. Mm -hmm. And he's like, there aren't eight of you anymore. Six of you are already dead. It's great. Like he is cocky in those moments. Um, because everybody has underestimated him. And I absolutely love that about Igor. And it's really shy. It's Lugosi's performance. Like it's humorous, but there's also that menace that is there. Like he hasn't forgotten how to be scary when he needs to be. He's you really get to see what he can do when he really is sort of let loose in this. Mm -hmm. And, um, like everyone has said, he's so funny and just sort of, but it's still scary enough, you know, when he Mm -hmm. needs to be. Um, And I, yeah, it just works so well. It's just, uh, he feels even more tailor-made for this than for Dracula. You know, it's just like, it's so great. Yeah. But I feel like in the later movies, the, everyone's going to want to revive the monster because it can be used as that blunt instrument. Everyone's going to want to revive the monster to basically so it can kill on command. Igor wants that because he has that, mm-hmm. you know, the hateful eight list, the eight burgers that he wants to have killed. But he does have this genuine affection for the yeah. creature. And you see that in the physical performance of Lugosi. There's that moment where he feels like Wolf is hurting the creature when he tries to revive it. And he almost steps between the two of them, Mm -hmm. like because he doesn't want to see the creature hurt in any way. Um, He genuinely understands like when the monster is rejecting himself by looking in the mirror and it's that reflection that is upsetting him. Igor understands like, the physical language of the monster. He moves immediately to turn the mirror around and then offers like comfort to the monster. And he tells the monster, Hey, it's a doctor. You can trust him. He is like the go between. And I love that for them. I love that. There's not just this, this is just a weapon for me. Like there's a genuine, he, much like the hermit. And I don't think it's any, coincidence that Igor dresses a lot like the hermit does and he has that heavy beard a lot like the hermit Mm -hmm. does the monster probably has a little bit of recognition and says like this is probably someone I can trust if they're thinking you know that far ahead in production who knows Um, but this is someone that I can trust the Igor another outcast is saying you know I am someone that will stand by you and trust you. And I, I really do appreciate that about this relationship. Yeah. He's sort of a bit of Pretorius, a bit of the hermit, you know, even using music to sort of command and control Mm -hmm. the monster in this case, rather than just entertain him. Um, And of course, Fritz and, uh, Mm -hmm. and Carl as well. You know, he's a hanged for stealing bodies, which is very much Mm -hmm. a Carl kind of thing. Yeah. So they said, so they said. Yeah. I love how he uh, just sort of 
and when he's in the courtroom, he just sort of coughs on the guy. Sorry, a bone was <laughs> stuck in my throat. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. So hanging seems like quite, that's quite a punishment for stealing bodies, isn't it? What else were you getting hung for in these days? Like jaywalking, hanging. <laughs> Didn't tip 20% hanging. Well, <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I, I That's that's an interesting thing to ponder. Skip there. church on yeah. Sundays, hanging. Yeah. Village of Frankenstein, oh, pretty, pretty harsh they, place yeah, to live. It is. it is. There is one great cut when... Uh, Wolf and I can't remember the wife's name because honestly, she's like such a non-factor in this movie. Kind of is, yeah. It's like I guess Wolf has to be married in this movie. Like I guess we have to do that. Um, but he he says to her like, "What do we have to be afraid of here?" And it immediately cuts to Igor like peering in on Peter as he's like sleeping in his bed. Yeah. It's like great cut, like mm-hmm. absolutely no notes. Chef's kiss would watch again um what else do we have here oh let's talk about this test of wills between krug and krog and uh wolf because i feel like this is also some of the best moments in the film like krog is really torn between his sense of duty like protecting the family and i think he does a good job of not blaming lady frankenstein and peter for being married to Wolf or being the son of Wolf. Like he doesn't hold any ill will towards them and wanting to protect the family versus also like your dad uh, built this thing that ripped off my arm and you're kind of a smarmy asshole. Um, And Wolf knowing that he's guilty, like he did the thing he said he wouldn't do. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to revive the creature. And then a week later uh, I revived the creature And he does this thing that a lot of us do. Like, I know I'm guilty of it. Like, when I do something I said I wouldn't do, I get loud and uppity about it and hope that nobody notices. Like, Wolf immediately takes things to 10. Like, how dare you? I'm a prisoner in my own home, these backwards people. I love these. these, What what do we make of these, like, moments between the two in the library or the study? They're most of my favorite scenes Mm -hmm. in the movie because he's... He's the most patient man in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, your dad made this thing. You don't even know him, but I know his monster. It knows my arm. <laughs> uh, and he's just still coming out from a place to be like, I'm trying to help you. This is If you do this, this is what people are going to say. This is what people are going to think. I'm just relaying how the village sees you. Help me help you change mm-hmm. that image. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. And then now through over the course of the movie, he's like, you did it. You you really, you really went and did it. And now he like knows what Wolf is doing, and he's trying to still trying to convince him to like stop, turn himself in. Like all of he's coming from it from more of a compassionate place than I would be after the first day. You know, 10 minutes of meeting Wolf, you know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And so he's just the, spends the rest of the movie just dealing with it and listening to it and having to 
put up with it until he he has all he can stands and he can't stands no more. Well, yeah, I mean, these are sort of the heart of the film. I mean, this is the primary conflict sort of personified in these two uh, characters. And um, so I, uh, they're just great sequences. And, you know, down to, you know, the dart match. And <laughs> I love that part. And, you know, where oh, the most aggressive dart match. Yeah. And, and, um, Krogh is just not good at darts, but um, uh, Frankenstein's real good. I mean, he's just like not mm-hmm. even looking and he's tossing them right into the right there, you know? And then, and then of course you have the great moment where he uh, sticks the bundle of darts into his fake arm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> those are, again, lifted into young Frankenstein. So. Mm-hmm. But I love it. It's a, uh, test of wills between these two mm-hmm. and it's a game of like both know that the other knows more than they're letting on like Krogh like Wolf knows that Krogh knows Wolf has been experimenting with a monster Krogh knows that Wolf knows this and neither can really say what's going on here there's this game of subterfuge mm-hmm. and you had mentioned that moment earlier Nat with like Peter saying like, I got a big giant, like in that Nashville <laughs> couldn't be any further remote removed from like Eastern European <laughs> English roots. I, by the way, like I would usually hate a little kid in a role like this. I love, I don't know what it is, but like Peter mm-hmm. is awesome. He's just like, I'm hunting lions and turtles and green giants in my room. Like, this kid's awesome. Like, give me a whole movie. Something about his performance just feels really authentic, I think. It it feels like a natural kid performance. It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. coached. Like, he was just like, okay, say this. And then he says it in Mm -hmm. in whatever strange sort of delivery he's going to give it. And they just like, all right, that's great. Let's move on. From from what I read, like the uh donnie donnegan who played him like he said like lee told him just be louder like don't worry about the accent just like talk loudly yeah. like don't sweat it it's totally cool and he's like okay and he's like the and he also he was like these movies are stupid like even as a kid he's like these are just big dumb movies which i would disagree with but you know whatever you see Krogh like being so patient like leading the kid by the hand and trying to look out for him and this test of wills. And I think Peter's really important to this movie for as little as he's in it, because at the end of the day, what, what Wolf has to realize is it's far more important for Wolf to be present in his own son, Peter's life mm-hmm. and be there as a father and raise his son and just be a part of his life. And rather than, try to live up to this legacy and impress a father that is never there for him and can never be there for him. Like there's nothing that Wolf can ever do that will win Henry's approval because Henry is dead. Henry was never there to begin with for Wolf and Henry will never have the opportunity to be there. He can't win his approval, but what Wolf can do is be a part of Peter's life and he can have a hand in raising Peter and that's going to be far more important going forward, what he can do in the here and now and what he can do going forward. And it really takes a monster trying to throw his son down a sulfur pit to learn that lesson. 
And hey, uh, I have I to can, learn the no, same sure, lesson. Yeah, I, yeah. I can relate. I mean, who hasn't <laughs> learned that lesson? Yeah. I know. I love this movie. I like the the stuff with with again Igor with Benson. Like, oh, he won't tell anyone, and you're like, oh, Benson's death certificate has been signed. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I know, and you know. Uh, and again, Benson is the first person the monster sees. And Benson is like brandishing a knife at him mm-hmm. when he sees, and all the monster has done is like flutter his eyes a little bit. And what is the first thing he sees? Someone acting violently towards him. Yeah. I think we're killing it today. <laughs> I think we might have the rare under a couple notes I do have mentally. I think we'd start to need we need to start doing like a a, a Frankenstein bingo card <laughs> where Thunder and Lightning Storm. Sure. Hunchback. Uh-huh. Lionel Atwill. Lionel Atwill, absolutely. Uh, Torches and Pitchfork crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's alive. Yeah, has to be in there. Like all of these, we need. That was some in this one too. There, there wasn't there. Here. Yeah. Uh huh. Kind mm-hmm. of feels forced. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. his hand. Um, it's alive. Yeah. It's alive. I do love at the end of this movie. Wolf is like literally run out of town on a rail. <laughs> well, like, they're, they're like, all right, bye everybody. See you later. It's like, and they just, and they just leave. And it, yeah. it's, it's like, no, no, no hard feelings. Bye. <laughs> so, yeah. We've, we've killed a few. We've, we've caused, we've caused like at least three deaths in the town, right? At least three. Mm-hmm. And they just get to leave. Like God, to be rich, yeah. to, be, <laughs> to be wealthy. Unbelievable. Where do you think they go next? Do they just go back to America? And what do you think Peter's like? How I spent my summer vacation report <laughs> is like is going to look like. Yeah. That is going to be and like the amicus. That would now be a call to CPS. Uh, we have a kid reporting that a giant green monster tried to throw him into a down a pit. pit. Yeah. And his butler died after being strangled to death at home. I think you need to go out there and visit the family. Because uh, that's what I would have to do yeah. at this point. Uh-huh. I mean, that, you know, you're investigating that 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 stuff now. Like, we get all, I, I get gaggle alerts at school all the time. Kids say, like, even slightly a little bit mean. Like, um, like just... What was it yesterday? Like, uh, I hate you. You should die. And they're just best friends joking on email. Like you read the whole email and it's clearly they're just two buddies joking. And you're like, you need to get involved in this. I'm like, oh, no, I don't. Like, it's just two two buddies at this point. Mm-hmm. So Peter talking about Jolly Green Giants, like murdering his butler, like <laughs> states getting involved. <laughs> It might be undercut by the way he delivers it. it might you know, be. Just be like, big giant tried to kill my pa. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't think Peter's getting into science. I think we don't have to worry about Peter <laughs> reviving the next generation of the monster. Right. Think that apple's falling far from the tree. If it even is falling at this point. Oh, poor dim Peter. Dim, sweet Peter. (laughs) So, all right. 
what else do we have? What any final thoughts on Son of Frankenstein? It's a fun one and shouldn't be overlooked, it and mm-hmm. it's yeah. worth giving a look mm-hmm. to, especially if you're a fan, yeah. like we've said, of Young Frankenstein, or those mm-hmm. are sort of necessary viewing. Well, that is our episode on Son of Frankenstein. This was a really fun one to talk about. We got to talk about orgies. We got to talk about <laughs> throwing kids down sulfur bits. We got to talk about hunchbacks. I mean, all of our favorite things all in one episode. Birthday cake. I mean, it's really a four-star banger. <laughs> Before we go, let's plug a few things. And Nat, uh, tell us what you have coming up. Talk about your book on Puppet Master and where can folks find you? Uh, yeah. Um, so I did several appearances on this podcast before the book came out and now, you know, the book came out, uh, October, 2021, um, puppet master complete a franchise history available everywhere. Um, it's now on audiobook from encyclopocalypse as well. Um, and also led to me, um, writing uh the puppet master video game uh yeah i wrote the uh toulon's journals for the game which are the basis of the single player mode Mm -hmm. uh and i may have uh some stuff uh coming up with the game fingers crossed uh as well but uh i wrote these audio logs that you complete objectives to piece together so i got to in canon and official like full moon produced game put the lore together um in an audio kind of almost audio play kind of format Uh, that was very very fun uh and so that game is on steam it's free to play it just uh added the demonic toys this week so that people can bring Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys to life in a way Full Moon could never, ever afford to do in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that has just uh, dropped, and I'm you know, I'm really proud of what I contributed to that game and really proud of what they accomplished making it. And uh, well, I just had a book drop a couple weeks ago that I put out on my own called a julie carol which is a slasher series of novellas um that it's it's on amazon or people can buy it directly from me because it's amazon can you send me (laughs) the link so folks can get it directly from you and we'll put that in the show notes um it's more just it's been very informal it's more of just dming me on twitter okay uh for a copy uh, but yeah um that the puppet master game that's all the stuff um that i've had coming up or coming out uh i'm on twitter uh instagram everything uh at netbremer excellent well thank you for coming on and i think we have you for another frankenstein episode as well yeah i believe we do i think we'll nail down which one and we need to reach out more this year i need to reach out more because it is always a pleasure having you on our show and it's been way too long and i apologize for that because we'd love having you on thank you i'm always happy to be here 
Jessica, speaking of loving to have a person on, love having you back in that co-host chair. Looking forward to more of that in 2024. Yes. Um, and I know you're looking to get back into film criticism and writing in a big way yes. in 2024. So mm-hmm. where can folks find your stuff? And is there any news that you want to break? Anything you want to discuss? Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter, Instagram, everywhere as We Who Walk Here. My website, wehowalkhere.com, has you know links to all my writing. Um, working on contributing some essays and possibly a book coming up. Um, but mostly, I'm just uh, after a little bit of a hiatus due to some personal and some family issues last year. Getting back into you know film writing and podcast appearances. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter at We Who Walk Here and my website WeWhoWalkHere.com. Excellent, excellent, Brian. I don't always busy. Yeah, I always a busy man. <laughs> I don't really have much more to add from the previous episodes right now. So I'll just say, you know, you can follow me on any socials you so desire to follow me on uh, at Brian Waves forty two, and um, yeah, just those uh, Manor Vellum articles on Frankenstein. That's sort of the mm-hmm. project. So excellent. And movies, uh, you can find the Movies for Life podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Yeah, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Life Pod if you want to follow us there. All right. As for us, um, please make sure you are taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, if you're listening on Apple, if you're listening on Spotify, hit that five-star rating button. Again, five-star review and a few kind words over an apple it goes a long way to new listeners finding us and it's a free way to support the show which we really appreciate another way to support the show is by literally supporting the show by giving us your money Uh, so you can consider becoming a patron today by going to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum where we have bonus episodes, bonus content up there. Uh, I think this month we're trying to get an Iron Claw episode up. Uh, I want to talk about that movie. And we, you know, we don't always talk just horror movies because we contain multitudes, people. Uh, don't put us in a box. All right. I got vaguely aggressive there. <laughs> I'm asking you for money and being aggressive. Should not be doing that. Note to self. But again, patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. If you would like to support us for a couple bucks a month, follow us at Twitter at pod and pendulum, Instagram at pod and the pendulum, blue ski at pod of the pendulum. Follow me over at letterboxd at Mike chump change. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Frankenstein. And I'm going to be honest, like, the next movie we're going to cover is like the Nadir of the franchise. I think. Like, it is the shortest movie of all of them. It feels like the longest <laughs> one. When we talk about Ghost of Frankenstein, Lon Chaney Jr. steps into the shoes of the monster. Lugosi comes back as Igor. Lino Atwell is back as well. What a picture. What a time. We'll be back next week. Ghost of Frankenstein. And it'll be the midway point in the Frankenstein journey. So see y'all next week. Take care, everybody.